Welcome to episode 209 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the podcast for you. My name is Noah, and with me today are the folks who just as confused as WandaVision's plot, Jill, Michael, and Ryan. Now, after the week's discussion <laughs> in GNOME 4, 40, excuse me, and some of the interface changes that are going to be being made, we couldn't help but compare those changes to the one of the most beloved operating systems of its time. So in this episode, we're going to talk about that operating system. We're going to find out why so many on the show consider it to be one of the greatest mobile operating systems of all time. And in addition, we're going to check out some new goals and updates coming to Tor in 2021. We also have our tips, tricks, software picks, all this coming up right now on Destination Linux. So this week in our community feedback, we received a URL actually from Christopher with a page that talks about law enforcement taking down three bulletproof VPN providers here. And Chris adds, I certainly don't support illegal activity, but the point of a VPN that doesn't keep logs is to provide anonymity. I worry where this whole trend is headed. Curious if you all have a position. Thank you for the awesome programs on Destination Linux. Best regards, Chris. In this article that he linked to us, which I wanted to bring up to this group because we've talked about this somewhat in the show. And of course, privately, we talk about this a lot about VPN providers and how in many cases they can be worse than not having a VPN at all, depending on who you choose as your VPN provider. In the article, it discusses that law enforcement agencies from US, Germany, France, Switzerland, and the Netherlands seize the web domains and server infrastructure of three of these VPN services. None of them I actually knew anything about. I'd never heard of before. Apparently, the Bulletproof services were hosted on insorg.org, safinet.com, and some other sites. So I guess I'll open it up here to ask you, Noah, VPNs, if you choose the wrong one, it's worse than not having a VPN, in my opinion. What do you think of that? So when you think about what a VPN is, it, it is a jacket that we place over packets so that they are protected from somebody else trying to look in to see what's inside of those packets. So we get that part. And then the other thing is those packets are going to be delivered to the network of your VPN provider. And then from there, they're sent back out onto the internet. And the idea is if you trust your VPN provider, nobody can distinguish the traffic that originated from your house versus Ryan's house since we're both using the same VPN provider in, in theory. Where what, what you're getting at though, Ryan, is if I am a malicious VPN provider, let's say I tell myself, hey, anybody can set up an open VPN server, therefore anybody can sell VPN service, right? And so is the, encrypt is the connection encrypted from my customer to me? Absolutely. Could anybody spy in on that connection? Not with technology that we know about today, right? However, once those packets are delivered onto my end, I can do whatever I want with them because they were only encrypted to my tunnel. From once you hit my the, the other end of your VPN gateway, now that provider has to be trusted to pass those packets on onto the internet and, and route all of that traffic and all, all those sorts of things. So there's a couple of things that we can take away um, when we're browsing the internet. Most people would say, well, I don't use, uh, I don't use Google. I go to DuckDuckGo because that has uh, a way better health information or way better, uh, you know, search security and privacy and all of those kinds of things. And of course that's true. But when you make a query in DuckDuckGo, you'll notice if you look up at the top of the URL, it will say DuckDuckGo slash, and then a question mark Q equals, and then the search terms. So if you're searching for a particular health a concern that maybe you're having, that's going to show up in the URL bar. Now, no, why do I care about that? Well, 
those DNS requests are going to be captured by by default. They're going to be captured by your ISP right. if you're if you're if mm-hmm. if you're just using their DNS service and so on and so forth. But let's say you've 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 taken the step above, right? You've gone ahead and connected to a to a VPN service, and so now you're connected to to somewhere else, and so you're thinking to yourself, "I'm safe," right? Again, that's the kind of information that's going to be transmitted uh, over in, to to that VPN service. And so there's I can't I won't be able to remember the the exact story, but the, it was something along the lines of a few years ago, there was a guy that wanted to find out exactly how much information he could elicit from people. So he set up a free VPN service and said, here's a VPN service and I'll just set it up for free. And he man in the middle, as many of those people as he could just to see what kind of stuff would come across his, um, his, uh, his VPN service. And he ended up presenting a DEF CON. I want to say it was 2015, 2016, somewhere in that era. Uh, And and he presented to DEF CON and said, here is all of the stuff. Here are all the bad things that people tried to do when they thought they were behind a private VPN that they didn't think that they would get caught. Here's all of the innocent people that are sending really dumb things to me that don't really realize what's coming out on the other end of the, of of the VPN tunnel. So you cannot look at VPN is just a technology tool. It's just a way to encrypt packets from your network to another network. And so to the extent that you trust both networks on both sides and you want to use that tool to increase your privacy, you should do so. But if you just think, I was above well, the destination Linux guy said that we should use a VPN. So I found this VPN, that one's free, or I'm going to go do that. Uh, does that necessarily uh, lead to success? No, it, you may well, end up putting yourself in a worse position. I love that you went through that because I think it's so important for people to understand. We, for instance, we use Bitwarden. We talk about Bitwarden. We use them before they came with sponsored DigitalOcean. These are companies we trust, but we get hit up every day, nearly weekly, at least multiple times a week about a VPN provider wanting to sponsor Destination Linux. And this is really tough for us because most VPNs do not have a history, a track record of safety. So to go out and tell everybody, hey, we talk about VPNs and how important they are, and here's one that's sponsoring us and they're not trusted, that would put us in a really bad place. So we basically deny all of those, obviously, coming in, especially if there's not court cases and a history behind that company proving that they're not logging, keeping this information and things along those lines. And somebody asked in our chat, they were asking about how do you vet a VPN? And to me, there's only two VPNs right now. I'm not saying they're the only good VPNs. These are only two VPNs I personally trust to run. One is Pia VPN and one of those is Proton VPN. Those are the only two VPNs I personally trust and have vetted. And PIA, because there are plenty of court cases and situations where they've brought PIA to the court system and said, give us logs. And they say, we don't have any. We can't. They, they create a legal document forcing PIA to hand them over and there's nothing there to hand over. So therefore it's in. So to me, that's proper vetting. Now, could any of these companies change their mind and do something different later on? Perhaps. But you got to look at the history of these companies and what they've accomplished. And that's why those are the two ones in Proton, just because of their history in the past with their email services and everything else, what they're going towards, I would trust and, them you as know, well. They, and the, again, they're open. You know what I mean? Like we've had, I've had Andy on the show numerous times and asked him, you know, how does this security functionality work? How does, how does that thing work? And, and he's given me answers like, 
when we were talking about some of the, the 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 creative routing things that they're doing to try to get around some of the censorship in, in certain countries. And he said, hey, listen, I can't go into it in that kind of detail because it would essentially be giving a roadmap to our attackers. But on our blog, we have XYZ and here's where you can read the information that we have carefully gone through and said, here's what we can, here's what we can tell you about how it works. And here's the parts that we can't tell you. And here's why we can't tell you. They're very open the way that they develop those technologies. And like you said, Pia just has private internet access just has uh, a long established track history of it. And, you know, there was, I had a question come into my show on, on, um, I think it was Tuesday and said, Hey, you didn't recommend a specific VPN. And I said, you know, and I answered him there and I said, yeah, it's private internet access. That's what I've used for years. And I continue to use it because like you said, they have that you, you can go into court and watch that happen. Hey, we want logs. We'd love to give them to you. We don't have them. You're welcome to come and look. If you can find something, you're welcome to take it. We're not trying to skirt the law. We just value privacy. So yeah. I, I think that's a good point. But I also, uh, and I think it sounds like we're pushing private internet access as a terms of like, what to use. And I would like to do the counterpoint and point out that when private internet access did all those proof of you know, the court cases and stuff, they were a company known as private internet access. They were not purchased by any other company. And then mm -hmm. they were. So now they are owned by a company called Cape Technologies. And so I don't, I think that it's fair to say that private internet access at that time was, you know, solid option, but we don't really mm -hmm. know that much about Cape Technologies to say that they are, is just as good as they were before. So that's true. I, I always think it, security is never a solid target, right? It's always something in moving and it's always something to constantly be evaluated. But again, I've not seen anything come out that has suggested otherwise yet. Right. That's yeah, true. And, and I yes. think it's something to keep your eye on. It's a good point. And I don't think there's a perfect solution here. I see people in our patron chat talking about Molvad, which of course is the one that I think Mozilla Firefox is partnered right. with and didn't have a mm -hmm. Linux release until recently. Thankfully, they finally got also that fixed. Right. But, uh, you know, I think you have to do research on the fact that Molvad is open source. I think if you are comfortable enough looking at code and can understand that, that may be something to look at. If you're not, then I really look at the history of that VPN. So if I'm going to choose a VPN service, I have to look at what is their historic actually had a court record or something showing that they do not keep logs before I would sign up with them. We are not, to Michael's point, pushing any specific VPN because there are risks you're going to take with anyone's, but I think there's also a risk of just allowing all your traffic out there to go to your ISP as well. So there's that. Yeah, that's true. Well, we love hearing from our worldwide community. What we want you to do is get your official DLN mug, fill it with some coffee, as Michael calls it, the spice of life. Sit down right. on the nearest stool and <laughs> send an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. And if you want to join the discussions like this one, then join the DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com. You might see a bunch of suggestions and things out there research people have done on VPNs this week. You never know what they're going to be talking about on the forum. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by our friends at DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point to your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting. It has su support for Python, Go, Node.js, PHP, static sites, Ruby, and Docker. And DigitalOcean runs their app platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. Plus, 
They built this new app platform on top of DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. As a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you $100 credit when you go to do.co slash DLN. And, you know, DigitalOcean has always been uh, wonderful for the community and sponsoring many different open source projects, including here at Destination Linux. And again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. We want to thank DigitalOcean for their sponsorship of this episode of Destination Linux. This week, we've brought a special guest from the DLN Extend podcast, Matt. Matt is known for his love of WebOS, so we thought we'd bring him on for this episode to discuss the project. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks for having me, guys. Of course, I love Yay, WebOS. Matt. <laughs> is that the WebOS hat, Matt? No. No. Okay, I, I was thinking maybe it could be, but Jill has a WebOS shirt on. Uh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's so, what I Ryan, mean. <laughs> bef- before we get too far into the discussion, obviously, somebody is out there undoubtedly asking themselves, what is WebOS? You just said WebOS? What is that? <laughs> is that an operating system for the web? Has it just come out? Where did that come from? Uh, Ryan, set the stage for us for people that maybe haven't heard of WebOS. Is it like okay, NetZero, so t- Ryan? Is that what it is? <laughs> is it like NetZero? No. Does it have AOL keywords? Mindshare. More like Mindshare. Yeah. So we the stage that we have today, you have iOS and you have Android. Of course, we used to have BlackBerry OS as well, but now they're basically Android. So those are the names that you're familiar with when it comes to a mobile operating system. The problem is that all of those I just mentioned, and I'm in the telecom industry, so I can say this mm-hmm. with absolute authority, are completely tired and boring. The days yep. of anticipating a new Android or Apple release are over. People don't get excited anymore. I remember the day when a new Android version would come out. We'd want to know the code name. We'd be going through trying to secretly find out what the new release was going to be, what the interface was going to look like. Now you don't see much on that. That's yep. not a good way to get views on YouTube is to talk about the latest iOS release or Android release of software because mm-hmm. people just, it's its usually just iterative upgrades at best. Yeah, the, the waiting in line stuff has been gone for years. Yeah, exactly. However, back in 2009, there was another OS that many feel was, and perhaps some still think, is the best mobile OS ever made on the market. And that OS was called WebOS. The maker of the Palm Trio was the one who created this website back in 2009 when there was still room for another operating system out there. People were still trying. iOS had not taken off fully. Android had not taken off fully. They still felt there was room for a third competitor. And that's where WebOS came in. And it had some amazing features for an OS back in 2009. In fact, if you were to list that there's a new OS coming out tomorrow and it contains these features, you'd be like, that's a modern operating system yeah. for mobile. And some of yes. it's still kind of innovative <laughs> even now. And also, when just to be clear, uh, Palm, if you want to come back to an existence and bring back WebOS, there's still a third, there's still room for a third In fact, I I would agree with you 100%. I -hmm. think there actually is a place for a third OS here to come in for the first time ever because I think the other two OSs are so boring and tired at this point. But some of the features WebOS had back in 2009, system of cards for multitasking, 
right? So yes, the yeah. whole card multitasking feature, that was there. That was built in. And the reason why we wanted to bring this up too is because Gnome 40 is also has kind of a card theme going yep. on. If you guys have been checking out Gnome 40, that's what brought this to all of our minds is some of the work that Gnome's doing with their interface very similar to this card's view that WebOS was doing. Powerful gestures. How about wireless charging with magnets? Isn't that a yes. feature that just came out on the latest <laughs> iPhone that everybody's like freaking out about? Like, oh yep. my gosh, magnets in the back yep. of the phone is so innovative. <laughs> they yeah. had that back then. Yeah, they had that. It was very um, good. It was actually a really solid wi- wireless thing, and also you could t- you you didn't have to worry about whether or not it was going to be charging because they had this puck system where when you put it on the dock that did the charging, it would just lock itself into a position that would guarantee it work, and it was so smooth and easy. To, you knew it was going to be working pretty much always. It's so it's so weird <laughs> that we had all these great things eleven years ago. And, and in fact, like this, this is some of the cards, you were talking about the cards for multitasking in 2009, multitasking wasn't a thing it, in, in well, addition to, you know, having this ability, it was the first to do this. It was like the innovator of the, of the structure. I think and, iOS was just figuring out, I could be wrong about this, but I think they were just figuring out cut and paste. Yes, that yes exactly. That's true. There was that's a couple true. of years yeah. they did not yeah. have cop, uh, copy and paste and stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, multitasking back then with, uh, like you could even have stuff running in the background, not just having multiple things up. You could do, you could even have video in the background with WebOS at the time and all sorts of stuff. It was really interesting. And also basically, I mean, Android just copied the multitasking structure that they did. So, I mean, that's pretty yeah, much where you've it got, from. You've yeah. got GPS, yeah. swipe up to bring the launch bar. Yes, it had a launch bar and dock mm-hmm. yes. built into the <laughs> interface as well. I mean, uh, install custom kernels, universal search. A headphone jack. The, yes. oh, the physical hardware <laughs> had a headphone jack. Okay, that's not unique for 2009, but I just had to put that in there because uh, I missed the headphone jack. <laughs> and then they had this tool called Synergy, which yes. integrated information from across all your apps. Oh, yeah. So you can sign into an account and it would integrate like your contacts from all the different things into one place. A lot of work been going on lately to try to do that in phones today. That happened in 2009, and they also were fighting head-to-head against iTunes at this point with Apple, and they kept creating an API that would allow you to sync with iTunes, Mm because iTunes was big. Mm -hmm. Remember, that was kind of the launching pad for Apple getting into the phone market was this really successful iPod that they had. Everybody was using iPods. They had iTunes. Well, Palm kept writing APIs, and Apple kept trying to write software to stop them but they kept updating their API to make it so that you could sync your iTunes directly with WebOS, which was just, it was brilliant. It was so brilliant. Mm -hmm. So with that being said, does anybody still have their WebOS devices in here? (laughs) (laughs) I do. Look at that. Every single person on the show (laughs) still carries this for the nostalgia purpose. That's how much of an impact these phones made this yeah. operating system in fact made. you know how like jill having her her hardware is not surprising at all we we expect that from jill at this point uh <laughs> but it's funny because uh, unlike jill i didn't keep my all of my hardware over the years and now i'm kicking myself for that after meeting jill Aww. so jill has shown me the area era of my ways and but uh, i did keep a few things though and one cool. of the things that i just couldn't let go of is my palm pre plus with web os it's just I, yeah. I i've got rid of most of my technology mistakenly uh but the few things that i did keep 
I had to keep the WebOS phone because I was such a huge fan of it. And I still am. It is still impressive even now. And it's been like 11 years or 10 years or something since I got it. Now, I knew Jill would have the hardware. I knew Michael had it because he showed it to me before. And of course, Matt, we got to get to you because you're a huge fan of WebOS as well. But what I was shocked about, and I guess I shouldn't have been, was that Noah was also a huge fan of WebOS. And <laughs> I, I know I should have known. I just, we never talked about it. And you actually have something that's still in the box with WebOS on it? Yeah, I have the one of the original tablets. I bought two of them. I was like, this is so good. I'm going to buy another one. So in case they don't ever make them anymore, I'll always have a backup. And then what I found was that, of course, you know, in a couple of years, it no longer, even if you still have it, doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that you can use it or do anything with it. And so it's eventually kind of gone by the wayside. But I've not opened it. It still exists and is still brand new in the box and has never been opened. And I'm just, I kind of look at it from no, time to time. That's called think, mint condition, oh. Noah. Mint condition. <laughs> mint condition exactly. yeah. You're going to get a lot of money for You're that awesome. one day. No one and, and Matt, we brought you on from the awesome podcast, Deal and Extend. And I wanted to get, you're, you've been such a huge fan of WebOS. What is it about this operating system that just stands out to you? For me, it's just the the very forward-thinking nature of it. You look at all the things that have been borrowed by the major players, even from you know BlackBerry, Windows, take your pick for plat mobile platform, swipe away gestures, uh, universal search. All that stuff was 11 years ago. When this came out by by not a major like company at the time, you know, Palm was a, a major phone OEM, but not software wise. Their software go go use like a Palm Pilot and see how well their software was. <laughs> right. Um, Prior so, to WebOS, though, it was better. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, what WebOS did is it showed what Linux can really do when a company is given rain to do what they will with it. And the consumer portion of it that I love about it is that you can still hack away at it. And like, this is the thing we like Linux users would have loved to support because you can do whatever you want with the tablet. You can custom kernels and all the other stuff. There's just so much to love about WebOS from an open nature to it. And that's really what I love about it is like, I have a custom kernel installed on the thing to still run. So like uh, pre, I think Preware is uh, like mm -hmm. a new yes. Preware. Mm -hmm. Preware is the uh, repository system for a lot of the the WebOS project stuff. Yeah, I and even wanted to talk about Preware because I'm, I was yeah. a, such a huge fan of the Preware part because of the whole like it was not just a repo repo; it was also a homebrew thing where you could mm -hmm. yeah. install your WebOS own custom internals. Yeah, the plugins could be changed, mm -hmm. extensions could be added. You could customize so many things. Like when I talked about the multitasking stuff, you could use Preware to enhance the multitasking even further, which was like taking uh, like YouTube videos. Like now people are having a problem with YouTube videos wanting to play it in the background and just turn off your phone. You have to pay a premium account for that. Whereas with the Palm uh, Pre and the WebOS structure, you just use the phone and it would do it. Like this, so, and it, it was 11 years ago and it was such a good interface and Preware made it even better. So why did this fail? You have this, what we're considering all of us. And by the way, when I got this device to bring it back, because I purchased this off eBay so that I'd have that nostalgia, my wife squealed. My wife, she's not a tech geek. She's not into all of this geeky stuff, but this was her favorite phone ever to this day, she'll yeah. tell you, was this device, the Palm wow. Pre here. So it, it's amazing that so many people felt this was 
the greatest operating system of its time. Why didn't it take off? What were the problems that this device well, had, this operating system? Had? That's a good point you're saying that. And also, like, there's so many people who are big fans of it. And it's it's funny because we all disagree on a lot of things when it comes to <laughs> what DVD I mean, we even is. have our own bridge. Yes, we have our own bridge. We disagree on certain things about, you know, what kind of software to use and what DE to use and what distro to use and all that stuff. But at the same time, we all agree that WebOS was the best mobile operating system ever. And it's also worth noting, for those who are not aware, WebOS is based on Linux. So it was not only mm -hmm. a fantastic uh, operating system in general in, its, in itself, like it had great features and all that. It also was a was powered by Linux, so it was even better. In terms of what it, how it failed, I, I think really it goes along with... Palm's failure to market and uh, use, take advantage of what they had in a mm -hmm. well-timed way. I think they were just really bad timing. And the biggest issue I felt that they did was they announced Palm's WebOS a year before they ever had anybody have the ability to use it. And they announced mm. it by showing on CES all the yes. features and cool <laughs> ideas and concepts and innovations they had. But they took so long to actually release it that by the time they did, probably half of it was already taken in, in, into Android at that point. So, like, they all of the innovative stuff, half of that was cut out and said, well, Android already has it. They did awesome work, but they... They played their cards. They played their cards way too... They, play like, they played their, <laughs> their WebOS cards way too, way too uh, openly. Yeah, and you know they did have uh, some hardware issues. Actually, I have uh, several Pixies here, three of them, in fact, and the touchscreens had stopped working on uh, two of the three. <laughs> so that was yeah, kind, kind of yeah. kind of a thing. I mean, I and I loved the Pixie to death, even though I had you know low vision. I would use a magnifier <laughs> to use this phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh! So how many webOS my... devices do you have, Jill? I right here. I've got seven. So <laughs> and they're ready the museum to go, of so. Jill never yeah, disappoints, yes, does it? Exactly. <laughs> I believe you actually had the tablet as well. What were your thoughts yes. on the tablet? Ah, uh, it's the best one ever made. Nice. Okay, you have a you have a Star Trek screen, <laughs> yes. which is awesome. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. best one ever made, and we all love the sounds. The Yes. Yeah. You know? it, it even so, has a satisfying sound set of yes. four things, and you swipe away the cards. There were times when I was like, you know, waiting on something or just bored. I would open mm -hmm. up an app just to throw it away, just to kind of hear it. So let me ask, so uh, Michael, in case people don't understand what cards are, even though they probably use them today, you want to explain that? Sure. Uh, cards are a way to organize your applications and on a mobile device, especially in the mobile er the era of what they did was like game changing. It's basically what it is now. Like you, you can open up your control center on iOS or whatever it's called. And you can open up the, the overview thing in Android and you have the cards laid out and you can, you know, sometimes they're vertically laid out and you throw them away on the left or right. Sometimes they're horizontally mm -hmm. laid out and you throw them up and up and down and that sort of stuff. Well, but at the time only WebOS had that functionality and it was a, a way to have applications built where you could, 
scroll through them and easily uh, throw them away or also you can actually stack them so you could do grouping stuff back then and it allows you to just have a nice multitasking structure with touch functionality without having to worry about where you find the applications and i think the best the best thing about the structure was that stacking thing. So if you wanted to have mm -hmm. certain applications, you could, instead of having to scroll a long way, you could go have them stacked and then individually go through that stack. You can like expand it and stuff like that. It was a really nice These are things full-blown yeah. PC operating systems are struggling to create yes. today, interestingly yes. enough. Jill, you have some neat history, of course, because you're Jill, <laughs> with WebOS. Tell us about meeting some of the developers. Yeah, so WebOS ports, and which makes a LunaOS, and HP WebOS had a very strong presence at the Southern California Linux Expo. And when HP acquired WebOS, they had a mini conference at scale, and I got to talk to many of the Palm and HP WebOS WebOS developers. And what was nice is it, it was HP just brought all the Palm pe people in. Nice. Yeah. So they didn't let any of them go. They were just part of the team. And what was really cool was our Linux Chicks LA booth at Scale 10X in 2012. Um, I was demonstrating Debian running on uh, uh, Palm Pixie, Debian and, and WebOS. Oh my gosh, how cool. <laughs> Dual booting on my Palm Pixie. And we raffled one of them off for a fundraiser. And the developers were like so impressed <laughs> and, and uh, saw my enthusiasm. I made a shirt <laughs> and everything and just went all, all out. And I had even created a WebOS Linux Chicks LA app. And the fact that I got Debian compiled on one of my Palm Pixies, they were really impressed. And, and I ended up being able to be a, a hardware beta tester. <laughs> because of that, it. that is Very awesome cool. it's also interesting <laughs> because the way you talked about it you're, you're you reminded me of the fact that i actually did also build apps on WebOS, uh and it's not because <clears throat> they weren't like impressive imp apps they were just kind of like building for my own but the reason why WebOS was called WebOS, we never even addressed that was because it yes. used web technologies it used html exactly. javascript and css to accomplish all the stuff that they did and it made it and it made it a very clean experience and it also made it really easy for me because as a web designer and developer it made it easier for me to jump into make stuff for webOS oh, yeah. and that's one of the reasons why it was such a beloved thing because it was so well engineered for that thing for it made it developers could easily jump in and i i think that the, yeah. one of the cool things about it is that you could make your <laughs> own web app and that was what is so cool. And it was just so yeah. let's took this into what can we learn from this? So we all loved WebOS. WebOS died and went away. Mm -hmm. We talked about kind of why some of the marketing issues with the release, their underpowered hardware. They did the terrible move of signing exclusive deal with only one carrier, which of course locked it into anybody else who was on another carrier couldn't have the phone. There were some mistakes there from a business standpoint. In Linux, though, Noah, let me ask you, what are some of the things that you think about with why this failed? Why didn't it take off? I think, you know, one of the things that first stood out to me when I first picked up a WebOS phone, I went, I remember I went in, I think it was a Verizon store and I was talking to the guy and he goes, yeah, this is the latest phone from Palm. And I, I'd used every Palm since the handspring visor. Like I put the handspring visor in my, in my, the, um, what did they call it? The visor, uh. There was a module that went in. It was a phone, and it went into my Visor Deluxe, and that that was the first Palm phone. And then the Trio line, which had ran Palm OS, but was you know a flip out phone. So when they came out with the the the, the first Trio that ran WebOS, I was kind of skeptical. I was kind of taken aback. I was like, okay, so it's made from Palm, but it's a new take. 
and like I remember the guy at the Verizon store telling me this is the only phone that you can buy in here that has a hotspot. And I said, "What's a hotspot?" And he said, "Well, you you take this and it and it turns it into a to a to a Wi-Fi um, access point." And I said, "So it's kind of like tethering with Bluetooth." And he go or, or with through a phone wire, which is how we were doing it at the time. And he said, "Yeah, but this is this is new. You just push the button." Nobody was talking about that, right? Android didn't do that. that. iOS, I don't even think it was a thing. Like it was so early on and they got so many things right. But the one thing they didn't do, and you watched Canonical do this when they launched Snap Packages was they didn't go to software manufacturers and say, hey, we need you to make your app for yeah. WebOS. Hey, we need you to make this. And the thing is, had we done that and had we had that discussion back into what this, when did the first, it would have been 2000, what, eight, nine, 2008 or two, the, it was like late 2008, early 2009 is when they started now. They announced if, that they were doing it. If we had had the conversation then, what does a universal mobile platform look like? It would have been, hey, let's make pages mm-hmm. that render well inside of small screens. And had we done that, it would have scaled perfectly to iOS and Android and all of those things. They just let it sit there and let everybody else kind of take the cake. And so Google came in with lots of money and started to compete with Apple, who came in with lots of money and was trying to take over the mobile world. So I don't know if it was so much what they didn't do right, so much as it was what other companies that had way more focus and were way more determined to succeed in that space uh, brought to the table. Yeah. And you imagine, you if you remember in this market, when iOS and Android went head to head, the big thing they would advertise was how many apps they had on their platform. The apps, having the most apps was the big push. And other companies like BlackBerry started falling behind there, right? And they weren't having those relationships with the developers and and creating software for their devices. They kind of just put it out there and said, well, if you want to, it's there. But there wasn't this kind of community engagement piece. I think that's powerful. Matt, from your opinion, uh, since we brought you in as a guest, close us out here. What is it with WebOS? Obviously, WebOS is still on TVs and things, so people know it's still in use. It's just not on a mobile device. But yeah. what are your opinions on what they did mm-hmm. wrong? Palm, then going to HP. HP's approach originally when they purchased that, looking at buying WebOS or specifically Palm, they were going to do a dual OS strategy. So it was going to be uh, WebOS on top of their hardware. And that was what they were, they were looking to be a little more independent from Windows. And when the new CEO came in, yeah. they he did not <laughs> like consumer tech, uh, like consumer branding and all that kind of stuff. He was a very, you know, business kind of end of end of the machine. And that was why you got the 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 fire sale, Noah, <laughs> for, yeah. for the tablets, you know, those $99, you know, 32 gig models. I think it was a bad business decision on HP's part. They they pulled the Microsoft Kin with it as far as like how long they left it out to market. And they didn't understand that sometimes things take time yeah. to actually saturate and become that. I think I it mean, was a year, know. right? When that it was like a year that HP had it before they killed it, or even less yeah. than that, or something like that. It, it was very. They short. had it for it was very short, and that was a lot of, because of the behind the scenes structure. Because the CEO from HP at the time was looking to spin off the um, hardware end of things like the consumer end they were trying to split the business and that's when you had meg whitman come back in and she was the one that open sourced web os that yes. gave us a <laughs> at least 
a longevity of things like Luna OS and now with LG on that end of things. But honestly, I really think it was the stewardship of the companies that helped make WebOS, but they also didn't rely on the community at all. Yeah. There, there was then, no partnership with, it was just a business partnership, but there was no community partnership. And I think that was ultimately the death of WebOS as a uh, mobile platform. Yeah, and Matt's right. You know, when they transitioned, uh, HP was in the middle of a, of, of a lot of transitions themselves. So it was just the wrong timing. It, it really was. Yeah. It, it, it was a lot of wrong timing and the CEO, CEOs changing and just the atmosphere and then wanting to, to split, like he said, to the server market and hardware market. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that there is the opportunity and I hope we find it. It may not be WebOS, but maybe... Maybe HP will wake up and use WebOS as an opportunity, but I think there is definitely a place for a third operating mm -hmm. system on mobile, one that focuses on the privacy and security that people need and want, and one that has features like this. It was way ahead of its time. By every calculation, mm -hmm. it should have taken over Android and iOS, or at least been a strong third competitor, but it, it didn't make it. And I think you all gave great points as to why that happens. And I think it's something that really all distributions and software companies should be thinking about just because you have the best written product at that time. If you're not out there engaging with the community, with the developers, and it's, it's going to go nowhere. It's basically going to fall flat on its face. And WebOS is a perfect example of that happening. Yep. They made a mm -hmm. lot of an innovative concepts and a lot of really awesome features, but they didn't get it out there and let people know that they even had that. And limiting it to one carrier, like you said, is also another factor of the exact same problem of if you, you want to have as mm -hmm. many people using it as possible. And anytime you do anything that limits it, you're just ultimately dooming your own project. So applying mm -hmm. that to everything else also, it fits there with this, whether you're doing a distro or you're doing some application development, it all applies to the same thing. Get people out there to let them know that it exists. Otherwise, you, you might not get it to be what you want it to be. And I think that the, the there isn't a place for another mobile OS. And I'm going to put it out there. I want it to be web OS. I want, yeah. I want HP to bring it back. back. I want it to be, I, because it's still good. <laughs> it's still, it hasn't even been touched in a decade and it's still good. Yes. Bring it back. You may not get <laughs> yeah. your wish, Michael, but there is a fantastic <laughs> software out there because we've got to move on from this topic that is supported. They do get out there in community and Noah's going to tell us about it. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we have trusted long before they were the sponsor of Destination Linux. You know why? Because Bitwarden was a community project first. They came onto the scene to be the password manager that has all of the features and things that you would expect from the big name password managers, but this you can self-host you can trust it. It's open source. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin. You can easily access your password manager as well as additional authentication options such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all of that to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, businesses to store, sync, and share their sensitive data. You can go over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free. Bitwarden, the open source panage... 
password manager, rather, that I use and trust because Bitwarden is 100% open source. You can self-host it. They go through security audits, make the smart move like many in the community have done and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. That tells Bitwarden that, you thank, that you're thankful that they sponsor this episode of the Destination Linux podcast. And a huge thanks to, to, uh, to Bitwarden for doing that. The premium subscription starts at just 10 bucks a year. So if you order, let me see here. Let me do, awesome. if you order one less pizza every two years, you can afford to keep <laughs> all you of your passwords safe. So again, bitwarden.com slash DLN. And a huge thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this week's episode of Destination Linux. So we have talked about the Debian-based and security-focused Tails operating system and the Tor browser before. And Tails, the amnesiac, Incognito live system. That's hard to say. Yes. <laughs> right off the tongue. Yep. Yes. Just <laughs> say Tails. Linux, <laughs> I know. Is the Linux distro that got Ryan started on his Linux journey four years ago. It's true. And make sure to check out the awesome video series Ryan is doing exploring the dark web and the Tor browser and Tails OS on his DOS Geek channel. Yay. Thank you. They're <laughs> awesome. And well, turns out the Tails project has some big plans for 2021 which include censorship circumvention. <laughs> I like that. I like yes. that. They want to com completely re redesign how to start tour and configure tour bridges. And, you know, this will just make it a lot easier for people in countries where accessing tour is blocked to circumvent censorship. And according to data from the Tor project, the top five countries by users of tour bridges are Russia, Iran, the U.S., Belarus, and China. And also, um, they're improving upon persistent storage, uh, improving the interface of the persistent storage settings and rewriting this nine-year-old Perl application into Python GTK+. Awesome. This will make it possible to improve it faster in the future. Yeah, that's Much really cool. To update. The, the persistent <laughs> yeah. storage is really important for something like that to because you want it to yes. be amnesic, but also sometimes you still want to save stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and they make it so <laughs> easy. The writers of the persistent storage part of Tails are, are just incredible. They did such an amazing job. You basically boot into Tails, you click on persistent storage, it gives you the warnings as it properly should. That obviously when you're adding in things like persistent storage, it does reduce some of the mm -hmm. security measures that Tails has in place because its whole idea is that it forgets things. But as you said, Michael, sometimes you need to save some files and things when you're rebooting that. So it does give you that option. And it's a simple switch. You click and then it has a whole menu of what you want to remain in persistent storage. It's brilliantly done. It's very intuitive. Anybody could learn it. And that's the type of software and really thinking about the user experience that Tails, I think, has down. It doesn't get a lot of, I don't hear about it, at least in my circle, getting a lot of credit for its design and ease of use, but it's it's brilliant. It's just so well designed. The features that they put in there, they make so simple to turn on and understand under each box what you're turning on and what the implications yes. of that is. And to me, that's just, it's brilliant. You're, you're allowing an easy user interface but you're also making it easy to understand what you're doing while they're using that interface. Yeah, so true, Ryan. They've just made it so WYSIWYG now for the average yep. user to use. And that, that, that's been a real big change in the last few years, which has been wonderful. And uh, they're also doing, of course, because it's Tails, lots of security and maintenance updates. 
So to improve the security of all applications entails, they want to migrate to Wayland. Ooh. I like it. I like it. <laughs> it's awesome. So Wayland is, a, as a lot of you know, a new display system for Linux that better controls how each application interacts with the rest of the system. And it should be uh, faster than uh, Xorg. So let's hope. <laughs> yeah, not only faster, yeah. but it has more protection, right? Because they're saying yes, that it will fix the unsafe browser can now be used, uh, how it how it's being used to de-anonymize you. So this will be a security improvement on top yeah. of it. Yeah, I think Wayland yeah, is an interesting... More. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, display server protocol that I, I what they're doing in the future seems like it's going to be great for a lot of people. But what's interesting is that I think that the Wayland protocol right now for Tails... Actually fits kind of kind of perfect. It makes because, perfect sense. Yeah. I thought the same thing. Yeah, yeah. tails. Yeah. Tails is meant. You're not for losing a, anything. Yeah, it's tails. for a particular purpose, and Wayland can fit exactly. that purpose just great. So I think this is a good idea. Awesome. So for those who are wondering, is Wayland ready for in general usage, and is this a good idea for tails? Yeah, I think it is. Yep. Let me ask this, <laughs> Matt. Is tails something you've ever played around with at all, or is it not got on your radar? Uh, despite all the weird esoteric distros I use, right? <laughs> I do. I thought for I sure shocked. this would be one up there. I, I mess around with it, but it's not something that I, every time they do a release, I'll take a look at it and see kind of what's improved and what's different. But it's not something that I personally keep as uh, close of an eye on as I probably should. But yeah. I, I do appreciate the work that they do on it because um, a, a lot of the work that they do is very needed especially in those countries that you did mention as far as privacy and all the other stuff so that is a really big important part and project that definitely i, I like to support and i have thrown them you know some financial stuff here and there because the, i do support that stuff and well i like that you bring awesome. that up because they're running a fundraiser right now so they they're asking if any anybody who has the the ability to donate wants to help out in this project. And I think it's just such a good project to support. You got a couple coins to throw their way. Consider mm -hmm. doing that for that front fundraiser. Um, they have it on their webpage. So as soon as you go to their, their website, you'll be able to donate to this incredible, incredible project and, and the work that they're doing. And I use Tails on computers that I just do browsing with typically. So it's so easy because you can just set your system up to boot to a USB drive and I don't need it to remember when I'm browsing. I'm just doing news articles or looking through things and I'll use Tails for that. And the great thing is once you reboot, everything's gone. So I don't have to worry about anything being saved. It's just, it's a brilliant operating system. If you've not checked it out, definitely consider checking it out. Also, Edward Snowden uh, himself <laughs> talks about using Tails and this is yep. how he was able to circumvent the NSA and others during this critical time where he was getting information over into um, the different journalists that he was working with tails was what he used the quotes right there on the website from him utilizing it. So it's a very powerful privacy tool. Yeah. He even yeah. responded back recently. So like people were asking like, this was years ago. Is it still a re relevant now? And he said that they, they are keeping up with, you know, making changes and trying to keep up with it. And he said like, I mean, just like a year ago or you know, a year and a half ago or something like that, that he still would recommend it. So that's, I mean, I think Tails is a really cool distribution and being able to, you know, have something that you know is going to be, uh, you know, being private and secure and anonymizing you and all that stuff. Now, you do need to keep in mind that just by using Tails, you're not going to be anonymous just the same way of using VPNs. You're not going to be anonymous. You need to make sure you're doing it the right way. And there's a lot of great uh, documentation on Tails' website that tells you what to do 
tells you what to do about tails. <laughs> wow. I did not mean to do that. It's Michael. I didn't. I didn't mean to. It just. It just happens. Sometimes they just come out naturally. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> All right, so in our gaming section this week, we're going to talk about Ravenweld. Is that the that we W E A L D? Is that weld wield? I I, I, yeah, I don't know because sure I don't think either. that's a word. I don't I don't <laughs> know because wield is spelled differently, so I don't know. But just know it's Raven, and then in Steam type W E A L D, and there you go. It'll come up. It's a strategic turn-based RPG. I really like strategic turn-based RPGs. The turn-based being the thing that I really enjoy, especially since I don't always have time where I get pulled away from something to do this fast-paced super action games constantly with things going on. So a little more slower pace, give you time to make decisions on how you want to attack. It has roguelike elements, battle through a forest filled with deadly monsters, a bunch of Michaels coming at you while unlocking power. Oh, maybe you didn't have that Michaels (laughs) part. While unlocking powerful abilities to help you survive. The deeper you go, the greater the challenge and the more you learn the land secrets. Strategic turn-based combat, progression and levels, unlockable lore, what's there not to love, Matt, tell me, have you have you played with this one? I have not. Um, I generically tend to avoid the EA early access games just because I'm more of a <laughs> g- give me a, give me a feature complete game. But I also avoid the, the, the EA Electronic Arts. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> yeah, this that's is early bit. access. Good call on that. Yep. But uh, no, this definitely looks like some definitely up my uh, alley. You know, I'm a, I'm a big RPG guy, so this will definitely be one I take a look at. And Ryan, the reason you, you look at something like this is so you don't die as much and stare at the ground or the sky. Yeah, that's that's true. <laughs> I can't because of the top down nature of it. Uh, there you go. And it's only four dollars and ninety nine cents. And my favorite part of it is that it runs natively on Linux, so you don't have to use Proton or anything else. Not there's nothing wrong anything wrong with using Proton, but I love when we get a native port. So mm-hmm. there you go. Native is better, but Proton is still great. And another thing that is great is the software spotlight. Since we're talking about Tor and privacy and that sort of stuff, we wanted to talk about uh, OnionShare. So OnionShare is an open source tool that lets you securely and anonymously share a file of really any size. It runs off the Tor network for added security, and it doesn't reveal your identity when you share these files. And you don't have to sign up for any accounts or anything like that. And it doesn't rely on centralized servers or storage services to do this. It uses a Tor, the Tor network to share stuff. And you can you give, you just give basically a link to anyone and be able to share whatever file you want to. It's a very nice uh, piece of software. And it, it gives you a nice, open source, secure, and anonymous way to sit, share files back and forth between whoever you want to. So uh, Onion Share, check it out. It's a great piece of software. Didn't Firefox get rid of their share platform recently? Yes, they did. It, it they died. Did. So this is a great yeah. alternative if you used Firefox's file share program, since that's not around anymore, is to check out Onion Share. And it comes on Tails, by the way. So yeah, if you just awesome. burn it on, burn Tails to a USB, you've got <laughs> Onion Share right there. Or, of course, you can download the Tor browser and uh, use it from there. This week, we're continuing our exploration of Git. Now, if you've been following along, at this point, you can... Uh, initiate a repository, clone a repository, add and sign files, make a commit, connect to a remote repository. You could even push remote and create branches. Now we've covered creating branches, but what do you need? What if you want to switch between the branches? Maybe you're working between the main project and you have a little experiment going off to the side. This is where Git Checkout comes in handy. So to work in a branch, we need to switch to it. Git Checkout can switch from one branch to another. You can also use it for checking out files and commits. So to use it, you'll type Git space checkout, all one word, all lowercase space, and then the name of the branch that you'd like 
to check out or switch to. The git checkout command also accepts a tack B argument that acts as a convenience method that will create a new branch immediately and switch to it. If any of this is confusing, we invite you to explore the past uh, tips and tricks section where we've covered git from the beginning. You can find those in previous episodes. Join us next week to continue the exploration of git on Destination Linux. So a big thank you mm-hmm. to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want more DL, consider becoming a patron like all these beautiful faces here with us back in the secret, super secret recording studio behind the scenes access here with us. You get perks like unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events, live recordings, destination links every Sunday. Get to hang out and talk with the crew. And also you get the deal after show as well, which nobody else gets but them. In addition, every Sunday at 1 p.m., we're now streaming live at dlnlive.com. The best part, everyone is invited. You don't have to be a Patreon subscriber in order to watch the show live. You can participate in the chat and join the chat live. You can go to dlnlive.com, watch the recording happen live, participate in the show. We can't wait to see you. And also go to dlnstore.com where you can pick up some swag and merch for Destination Linux Network. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, and also so much more. There is a lot of great stuff, including a custom uh, collection of items that we have in there called the Because Collection. And we made this, this collection because. That's it. We just wanted to have a collection of items. Be- and that's why, I named, that's why I named it Because. Okay. Just All right. Because. Good enough. <laughs> And uh, for all of you out there who don't know how many amazing shows we are are a part of the Destination Linux network, uh, let me just uh, tell you a few. We have the Pseudo Show, the Ask Noah Show, This Week in Linux, DOS Geek Channel, <laughs> there goes Ryan, <laughs> DLN Extend, Hardware Addicts, and Get Your Game On with our latest show, Game Sphere with Chris Ware. So go to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all our shows to keep those penguins marching and the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. <laughs> Web OS love. Yes. There you go. Oh, right. Actually, in that, love. in that case, I'm going to go ahead and open mine too because there we go. <laughs> Yay, there we go, you guys. <laughs> I have to hack mine because I'm locked out. But yeah, what was the, <laughs> there you go. You can't sign up for an account anymore. It's down. Come on, HP. Bring the servers back up. What's wrong with you? Uh, when yeah. I when I opened the phone, I was like, I wonder if preware still works. Yes, it does. Yeah, it does. Yes. It's yes, it's still it does. Yeah. yeah. So uh, most of the apps haven't been updated since 2018, what? but it does still work. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs> the fact that it was 2018 uh, though, that's even what's more ridiculous. It's like it was yeah. <laughs> it was still around for five extra years when they killed it. And yeah. And then I remember playing back with it like 2017. And I was just like, is this still working? It did. Like, why? Awesome, but why? And it still technically works. You can still get stuff from it, and you can still customize the the whole system and everything. It's yeah. So cool. So cool. It's amazing. I was using my pre three up until just a few years ago, actually. It still has one of my main phones. Wow. Main phone. And what I was doing, because, you know, they stop, you know, the Google accounts stop working and the certificates and everything. So I was using if this, then that to send me Google notifications (laughs) via SMS. (laughs) SMS. I love it. I, I'm just I'm so happy and surprised at how many people still just love 
WebOS. It makes me uh, yeah. yeah. It was something that I knew that we all had like you know nostalgia for, but I didn't know we were all mm-hmm. big fans. All of it. in this together, and it's it's yeah. so interesting because of the fact that we are. It's very rare that we all agree on anything in particular, and to, have, and to not not just agree, but be huge fans of it entirely. Yeah. Like it's just right. such a yeah. good. It brings people together. HP. Yes. You need to bring WebOS back so you can have everybody bringing it together. Yes. That's Qualcomm the... owns WebOS today. Who? Qualcomm. Okay, Qualcomm. HP sold you need to all bring, of the... bring it back, Qualcomm. 